It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group, publishers of the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, and the Sag Harbor Express, as well as the websites 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. Uh, my co-host, Bill Sutton, on vacation this week, so joining me today as co-host is Brendan O'Reilly, who's the features editor for the Express News Group. Hey, Brendan, good morning. Good morning, Joe. Thanks for joining me. Uh, our panel today, solid as usual. We have Denise Civiletti, who is the editor and publisher of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. How are you? Uh, Jamie Buffalino, who is staff writer at the East Hampton Star. Hey, Jamie. Hey, how's it going? And my good friend Star. Hello, David. Good morning. Denise Civiletti, editor and publisher of Riverhead Local. Good morning and Grant Parpin, the content director for the Times Review Media Group. Good morning, good morning. Bill. Good morning, Happy Grant. to be here. Nice good to morning. see you. Good morning, Annette. I introduced you and yeah. didn't say hello. So this is a different format than I'm used to, so I wasn't sure if I was allowed to speak, even though it is a, a, a radio show. But, you know, yeah. I never knew if I'm supposed to jump in or not. But hey, how are Spe- you? Speaking is encouraged. Oh, good to know. <laughs> so I won't just sit here mute and be like, why was that girl even on? <laughs> no, I'm sure you have a lot to contribute. Um, So we've got a a bunch of topics that we're going to talk about today. Let's start with legalized recreational use of marijuana or cannabis. I'm not sure which is the preferred term at this point. We've talked about it a couple times on the show, but it seems that, um, you know, as the new state law is is poised to take effect, there's been a lot of um, advancements uh, recently, I know Riverhead Town Board, uh, Denise and Grant, had um, had discussions about whether they want to um, allow sales and and uh, and use in in the town. You guys want to want to jump in on that? It sounds like the jury's still out on that, right, Grant? I mean, um, they had an initial discussion and they promised. Uh, what, how did they? How did the supervisor put it? This is going to be a very long process. I think she said, um, and this took place at the work session yesterday. Um, they got a, um, a briefing on the law by Deputy Town Attorney Anne Marie Prudenti, and um, you know they um, have to make the decision whether to allow the you know sale of, of uh, recreational pot in Riverhead Town and or or not. And by not doing that, then you pass up on the tax revenue. So, you know, it's kind of like the little carrot hanging out at the yeah. governor dangled in front of everyone. Um, has, and, has, um, any, has anybody estimated how much the tax revenue would be for the different towns and, and, and villages? It's like 4%, right? Right. But 4% of what, I guess? Exactly. For, you know. um, the other thing around here, too, is um, people who uh, want to grow it, you know, I mean, that's another issue, uh, you know, it's a farm use, I guess. And uh, so just like the medical marijuana um, growers, but I, it sounds like this might be a little more um, wide open in terms of how many uh, growers there can be. You have to have a separate license for that from people who have a, are licensed to sell it. They can't be they can't be licensed to do the same things. But, um, you know, that may also present issues down the road in kind of an agricultural community here in Riverhead on the North and the North Fork, uh, where, you know, what are those places going to look like? Uh, Assemblywoman Jody Giglio was raising questions about, you know, like lights and security and fencing. Is it going to really be kind of have an agricultural feeling or is it going to be, you know, kind of uh, industrial and 
maybe even prison-like or something. Hmm. So, uh, you know, that's enough. And especially if you're not doing those protocols of masking and social distancing, um, you could you can catch it a lot quicker and a lot easier from these variants. Yeah, the variants are a lot more contagious in some cases. Yeah. Ja- Jamie, I wonder if some of it too is social. <laughs> uh, it just has to do with uh, more gatherings that are happening now because people's guards are dropping a little bit. And- I, <clears throat> yeah, I agree. I think there is like a pandemic fatigue and there was kind of a false sense of security, you know, after the post-holiday surge, uh, the numbers went down, but they never, they really have plateaued. You know, so people uh, got the wrong message, I think. And uh, people have been a little bit lax, obviously, because the numbers are, the infection rates are still too high uh, for comfort. Yeah, Brendan, the the vaccination rates locally have been been pretty solid, though, correct? I mean, it's not a matter of uh, local community not not being vaccinated at the same rate as the rest of the state. That's not what this is in, is it? Our vaccination numbers in Suffolk County haven't been off at all. I would say that we've been pretty good about the people coming forward and and receiving that. We're, we're not seeing uh, hesitancy to get the vaccine catch up with us yet. You know, once we're at rates of where, you know, 80 percent of the population has been vaccinated, getting that last 20 percent vaccinated is probably going to be the hardest part. But up until now, if they have a supply of vaccines, there are people ready to get it. I actually had my vaccine appointment today because they finally lowered the limits of people who are 30 and up. So uh, for some reason, even though journalism and the media was considered essential work, journalists were not considered essential workers in the case that they could actually get vaccinated like other people who go out and deal with the community on a daily basis as part of their jobs. So there's a lot of journalists in their 20s who are putting themselves at risk every day and they're still not eligible, but they will be soon because New York State is going to make all adults eligible for the vaccine soon. And the supply seems to be there. And it's it's down to 30 now, correct? That's the the age uh, at the moment, but it's going to drop even further in the next week or two, correct? Yeah, I I think it's 18 or or maybe possibly 16, but basically all adults. Okay, great. Good to know. You know, one of the most interesting things I read um, throughout this pandemic uh, was a piece, I believe it was in uh, The Atlantic, and it was about the the idea of super spreaders um, with this particular disease, that, that it's a difficult thing to chart why some areas uh, suddenly have a flare up uh, compared to others. And a lot of it has to do with it's not about the broader communities uh, run because we see this coming a couple of years down the road and they were right. And those people are pretty well positioned to start growing this marijuana. So I think you'll see a good amount of marijuana produced here. I know I've heard from some people. What is that going to smell like? What is that? I, I, I don't know. I don't I, you know, I'm, I have no experience with that, but I think it uh, it's going to be interesting because I do think the East End, like a lot of other things, it, it's they're going to grow marijuana here. I don't know. They're going to have a gummy factory. That's what I want to know. I could just see this. <laughs> well, my thing with Riverhead. Orange bear on top of it. That's like a gummy. <laughs> my thing with Riverhead, are they in a position to say no to the tax? Uh, I know you say it's dangling a carrot, but it's also like, I mean, that's got to be a mighty tasty carrot to them. And it seems like they're kind of saying that they're waiting to see what the public thinks. 
I don't know. I don't know from if you if if Facebook comments are any uh, <laughs> true barometer, but I would say that people want it. I, I don't. I don't hear too many people speaking out against it. I think if they don't approve it, then you have the Shinnecock just waiting to swoop in. Right. Well, a lot of that's going to have to do with what with what adjoining or adjacent towns and villages do too. I mean, if if Riverhead says no and um, you know, and Southampton says says yes, then then Southampton's getting that revenue. People are just going to Southampton and, and buying it and bringing it back. I, I I think that it's important to remember that you know we have the service based economy and the people who work you know the workers in the service based economy. A lot of them are. Um, um, can't take time off. They can't work from home throughout this pandemic. You know, they can't work from home. They can't take time off they, because they won't get paid. And a lot of them are people who ha are, have not been eligible for unemployment or any kind of uh, pandemic relief money. Um, and so there's this entire population of people, I, I think, I mean, I've spoken to a number of them who are like, they have no choice but to go to work. You know, even when they're not feeling well. And, um, you know, that I think is a contributing factor to where you see, you know, the higher um, rates in communities like Riverhead, Riverside, um, and some of the other communities where there's more, you know, affordable housing, people can, can, can live um, more affordably. And they are the backbone of this service industry uh, workforce, I think. So, I think that's kind of a factor as well that's not really been um, discussed too much. Um, if you look at the numbers, prior to October, all through the summer, our seven-day positivity rate was below 2%. It was, you know, you hit Halloween, started going up. And then, of course, with, you know, Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, et cetera, uh, it went up real high. And now, you know, the governor keeps saying, oh, well, we're down back to where we were before the surge. And he keeps dating the, the front end of the surge at, at Christmas. But that's just not a fair comparison. The surge really started with Halloween and especially then Thanksgiving. So, I, you know. And Brendan, now we have uh, this week was uh, spring break for the schools. And so yeah, yeah. I think I think a lot of families now uh -huh. uh, felt comfortable enough. To, to start to travel. And, and we may start to see the fallout from that in the next couple of weeks, correct? I find travel just one of the most concerning things. Uh, you know, if you travel with the people who live in your household year round and you stay away from other people on your vacation and then you go home, uh, you know, there's a good chance you're going to be okay. But if you have three kids and they all come home from three different colleges in different parts of the country, and then you get on a plane with your family and you go to yet another part of the country, and then come back, you know, that's how spread happens. I would hope that a lot of parents are saying this is not the year uh, for my daughter or son to be going to Florida for spring break because Florida has really relaxed the limitations that slow down the spread of this virus. There's states and counties around the country where they're lifting mass mandates about one year too early to be list, uh, lifting mass mandates. So when travel resumes, especially going from a more responsible state like New York to a less responsible state like Florida, uh, we're going to pay for it. I think, it, you know, you do have a great point about spring break that we will probably see a post spring break surge, probably not at the same level that we see the big holidays that everybody celebrates like Thanksgiving and, and the December holiday season, but there will be an effect. 
I think, Brendan, I think Brendan's absolutely right in the sense that, you know, when the history of this pandemic is going to be written, it's part of it's going to be the politicization of um, the pandemic. And there was no real national response to it. Whereas Brendan's saying you can go to, you know, Florida and there's, you know, it's open season um, and there was no national uh, response to this thing. And when you look at a, a state like Michigan that is now seeing uh, a resurgence as well, and <clears throat> the, the mask mandate was a, a big issue there. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamie, we also, I, you know, I think now we're entering a time where there's going to be more and more people vaccinated. Uh, and I think, I feel like this thing will take on a momentum at some point and, uh, and, and maybe uh, we, we might start to get on top of it locally. Yeah, I mean, I was I actually didn't uh, really scramble to get a vaccine because I couldn't deal with uh, spending hours on the website and competing with everybody. I felt like I was being safe enough that I could just wait my turn. And then one fell in my lap kind of uh, last the opportunity fell in my lap last week. And I became instantly really excited about having summer, like going back to normal. And I really feel like at this point, it feels like that's possible, you know, unless, you know, people continue to just not uh, abide by the rules and like, you know, protect themselves. I feel like given the rate of vaccinations, we could have a normal summer again. I think that's fair. I I think it's going to be an interesting uh We'll see, because I I, th- I think people's pent up desire to get back to normal is going to be unleashed. And I'm yeah. not sure there's going to be anything we can do to stop that from happening. Um, uh, it may, it may not be unleashed in the way we want. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. One of the good things was that that one thing we learned last summer was that the beaches were a relatively safe place to be uh, through this pandemic. We didn't see any major outbreaks here. Uh, when beach season started. Uh, but Brendan, a lot of this goes back to just the basic rules of continuing, even after you've been vaccinated, uh, continuing the mask wearing and the social distancing for a while longer. And I'm, I think that message is being delivered uh, over and over again. The, the CDC certainly is delivering it. And I think we are getting a national message uh, out of the White House now. But people really have to keep that in mind, don't they? I think it's, it's very tempting once you get the vaccine to think that you're past this, but it's just not that simple yet. We don't know enough about the disease. Well, absolutely. And, you know, Pfizer's uh, press release from yesterday notes that the vaccine was 100% effective in preventing severe disease as defined by the CDC, 95.3% effective in preventing severe disease as defined by the Food and Drug Administration. That's at preventing severe disease. Now, you may be looking at 90 or 95 percent effective at just not getting uh, not getting the virus. But then you still have the one in 20 people who are vaccinated who can still catch it anyway and become a spreader. So you'll have it. You won't have severe symptoms because you've been vaccinated, but you'll still have it and you could still spread it. And as somebody mentioned before, we have the variants. Uh, Luckily, Pfizer notes that the South African variant is one of the variants that the vaccine is effective against, but that's not gonna be true of every single variant that's out there. And we also don't know how long protection lasts. They're saying that people who have been vaccinated uh, 
six months ago were still so, still showing signs of strong resistance to the to the disease, but we don't know what it's going to be like nine months out. We don't know what it's going to be like 12 months out. So you might be vaccinated and a year from now need a booster shot or need a second annual vaccine the way that you need a flu vaccine every year. Very well could become just part of our lives going forward. No question. This is Behind the Headlines. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host today is Brendan O'Reilly, uh, features editor of the Express News Group. Our panelists today Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Jamie Buffalino of the East Hampton Star, and Ambrose Clancy of the Shelter Island Reporter. So um, something else that's been going on in all of our communities recently, uh, we've all seen some of our towns and villages wrapping up uh, a discussion about the police. And this was a reform conversation that was ordered by uh, the governor uh, as part of, you know, in the fallout from uh, George Floyd's uh, death out in Minneapolis and all the protests that came as a result of that. Um, I'm curious what the reactions are from you, from you guys about how the process went uh, in your communities. Do you think it will make a difference in the long run? Uh, Denise. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ambrose. Kick it up. Kick it up. <laughs> uh, yeah. On Shelter Island, it was um, it seemed like a very successful uh, program. Um, it um, and changes. I think changes will come with the police department. It's tiny, like all of Shelter Island. I'm gambling at the at the casino yeah. and, you know, stay at the hotel. And it's a one stop shop now. Let me tell you something. The, the tribe is speaking my language. This uh, all this stuff, you know, the gambling, the dispensaries. I'm going to spend a lot more time down in uh, your neck of the woods. You'll be seeing me a lot more, Bill. All right. <laughs> Mr. Grant, I never knew this about you. <laughs> oh, you knew it about me. <laughs> so I guess it's up to the state to decide whether somebody can sell or is that more producing? Because I remember in the release, I think it said something about allowing, you know, minority groups to have um, a say in it. I guess that's in actually growing it, right? Yeah, and retail. Um, and retail. So although it, it's unclear how that mechanism would would work. Um, but, you know, by the way, I mean, it, there's um, coming up on Tuesday in Sag Harbor, there's going to be a uh, freedom rally uh, in, in Steinbeck Park, uh, organized by David Falkowski, who is a, a hemp grower and a C CBD um, uh, sales guy who has a business in Sag Harbor. Um, and kind of interestingly, at, at the moment, um, the chief of police, the Sag Harbor chief of police is scheduled to speak at this 420 rally on 420. Uh, and there's some thought that the Southampton Town Supervisor Jay Schneiderman may speak as well, which is you know, it, it's kind of a mind blowing moment to to think of um, chief of police and town supervisor speaking at a, a weed rally. Um, do, of course, do you think do you think Jay will play the drums? I'm just curious. <laughs> Are the smokers going to be there? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. They're having this um, right uh next to the, the North Haven Bridge, which traditionally has been a place where people have gone to smoke and drink, whatever. Um, but of course, it's it's a park where smoking is prohibited. So um, and this time they won't be under the bridge. They'll be on it, I guess. <laughs> Which East End town do we think is most likely to just say no? Hmm. Shelter Island, maybe? I would say so. Yeah, that would uh, be my guess. 
I think it depends on what everybody else does. It's just going to be a domino effect when I think Southampton is probably poised to, to approve it, although they haven't made any decisions yet. And when that happens and if the Shinnecock, you know, open a, a, you know, open up some shops there, then I think, you know, we said earlier, it just becomes harder to say no for the, for the other towns and, and, you know, municipalities, some of the villages might say no. I could see Southold saying no, I, I, I could, I mean, I don't think we've, quite gotten there with them yet where i would say that definitively but it would not surprise me at all which is kind of funny because obviously most wineries in south Hold town you have a hmm. uh, fair amount of bars um so do the I know uh, it's a little different i'm not trying to say it's all the same thing but it's do we know if the municipalities get to limit the number of shops or licenses that are allowed i think that would all go through planning yeah from what i understand yeah. you, you know you would have to you know apply apply like you would with with any other business and they could certainly the towns or villages could say we're only going to allow four and in this area we don't want them on on main street we would rather have them over here or over there or whatever but i think you need to be careful doing that too because then you do create you know what david described earlier where you create this this pocket of of you so let's go over to you know let's go over to jobs lane and and look at all the different um Mm. You know, marijuana shops. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of restriction would open the towns up to litigation um, as well as pressure from landlords. I mean, I think that's not an insignificant factor. Um, You know, uh, the commercial real estate in uh, certain places, you can imagine, for example, in Montauk, where some of those property owners would love to to lease to to that kind of tenant. and it's hard to imagine that that won't happen. Will it happen before the November election? I'm not sure. Um, you know, I think if if uh, they have until the end of December to make a decision, right? Well, that's right. You know, so you should actually opt out of it. They like they're in. Yeah. It. They 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 actually need to adopt a local law that's subject to a permissive referendum. To uh, everything was just very held very close to the vest, and I feel like um, you know the the police force in Riverhead Town. Um, Everybody, nobody disagrees that they don't do a good job or anything like that. No disrespect intended, but yet, um, not in East Hampton, not not in Southampton either. I don't think, other than you know, other than saying that it's something they're going to look at. But I, I really can't wait to see like the the Zoom <clears throat> backgrounds on these meetings when they have the public hearings on these, with, like <laughs> Jimmy Buffett playing in the background of the Zoom, and you know, like tie dye behind the guy. It's going to be awesome. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Bill Sutton from the Express News Group, my co-host Annette Hinkle from the Express News Group, David Rattray, editor of the East Hampton Star, Denise Civiletti, publisher and editor of Riverhead Local, and Grant Parpan, the um, content director for the Times uh, Times Review Media Group. Should we, should we move on? Um, I know, David, you wanted to talk about um, the water report that uh, Chris Gobler from um, from Stony Brook University right. um, issued this week on the terrible conditions of, of East Hampton waters. Do you want to talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, that really um, it sort of came as a bit of su- surprise to me because in past waterways reports, um, he's been analyzing uh, the Gobler lab has been analyzing uh, South Fork waters for some time. Um, <clears throat> and there was a sense of cautious optimism. Um 2020 was not good, however, and almost every water body now uh, <clears throat> on the East End is impaired. And and 
you know, we've sort of known there's water problems. There's been uh, die-offs of fish and and various kinds of red algae blooms and the cyano, cyanobacteria in Lake Agawam and places like that. Um, but what's different now is is because of the studies having gone on for so long, there, there, there's the uh, there is data now. A lot of this had been speculative mm. up to this point, and for the first time, there's actual um, information about nitrogen levels, which are considered one of the the key components in in um, hypoxia, for example, which is a, a low oxygen condition created by too much algae growth, um, you know the 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 towns and the counties have adopted these very strict nitrogen reducing uh, strategies, whether it's limiting fertilizers or um, it, uh, mandating specialized expensive septic systems. Uh, that was somewhat speculative. And now we're beginning to get data, baseline data that shows that the nitrogen levels in the East End Bays and harbors are actually elevated above the level considered safe. Um, you know, is, that coming, is that coming from warmer waters? Is that, did I read that partially. right? That, yeah, that's, that's right. part of it. So part of it is, is yeah. you know, is, is warming stuff. I think that's part of it is that you also have, you know, a lot of uh, it, the, the way the groundwater moves. It's like this, this, the, the nutrients and the organic matter that's hitting the water now could have been put in the ground 20, 30 years ago because mm -hmm. of the, the slow movement. So that's the other thing that's kind of disturbing is like you may be looking at, you know, decades of what's been that's going right. on further inland. The, the other factor, which is, is kind of wild, is how busy, I mean, the, the uh, septic pumping uh, companies have been this winter because people have occupied their mm. houses, uh, you know, 24-7, 365, rather than only on the weekends. Uh, and in some cases, you will have uh, sort of extended families moving into their summer home in the Hamptons. And uh, a lot of these are waterfront. And, uh, you know, in the, case, in the case of a lot of the ponds in the bays, these outdated septic systems are essentially in the tidal waters or in the fresh pond waters because, because of the uh, uh, of the level of, of groundwater. So, um, you know, the, the pressure may uh, have something to do with the sudden spike of, of bad conditions here, but it is troubling. Um, you know, Earth Day is coming up and I don't think uh, there really is a comprehensive regional approach to, to improving the health of the waterways. There's been lots of talk for 50 years about doing so. Um, and uh, not a lot of progress really um but this is an interesting moment having some data to to base real policy on i think is is something that is important and is different now do do you, do you think that i mean you, you talked about new septic systems and, the, and and i know there was a big county program and there were hmm. um there were positives and negatives about the cost of of these new septic systems that you know that um, that were being required and, and rebates in the different towns and all that. Right. Do, you, do you think that, you know, do you think that the county and the towns have done a good enough job with that? Or, or is, is some of the focus going to have to be on on improving that? I, I think there will have to be a focus on strategies for specific waterways, not just sort of a general mandate. You know, you have to put this 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 nitrogen re reducing tech in uh, in upland areas. I think uh, East Hampton Town took some steps in that regard, which was to have greater rebates the closer you were to waterways. Um, but it but it was really voluntary. Uh, you either had to choose to do this or if you were uh, building a new home or uh, substantially upgrading. Uh, I think the sense is that in order for there to be real progress, there's going to be have, have to be watershed by watershed 
um, plans uh, to to really attack the problem, to understand where where it's coming up from and what the priority waterways are. Now, for example, in East Hampton Village, there's a huge project underway to dredge Town Pond, which is the famous green pond when you you take a left at the light if you're driving east on 27. Um, that le- that pond is uh, of almost no environmental importance. Uh, it drains into Hook Pond, which is an impaired waterway, which itself is probably not as high a priority as something like the Sag Harbor Coves or Lake Montauk. Um, so for our observation has been that there's not a lot of strategy behind uh, waterways improvement. Uh, and it's more politics. It's more getting out in front. You know, Suffolk legislature wanted to be the first in, in, in New York state to to mandate these these low um nitrogen septic systems. And so they were way out ahead of the science. And I think to a certain extent, they still are. Um, but I'm hopeful, you know, I, yeah. I do. You know, I think that to the extent that we pay attention to work that's being done at the universities and, and by private organizations on what's actually in the water and what can be done to turn it around. And, um, you know, politicians are not, um, you know, water scientists. Uh, I can't think of any PhD science PhD is currently serving in any of the town or village boards. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think, I think there's a sense that this stuff is not seat of the pants. You really have to be methodical and figure out what the priority areas are and how to attack them. Right. Now in Riverhead, you guys have the sewage treatment plant, which, which I think, so you're not facing some of the same issues with the, you know, with the new septic upgrades, but there's, I mean, still the waterways are still suffering. Most of the town's really not connected. I mean, a good part is not connected to it, but most of the town is not, I think, I don't think. I mean, especially uh, when you get east of Riverhead Central, you know, um, Akabog, Jamesport, where there's a lot of, you know, same kind of coastal development around the waterways um, that are relying on, in many cases, you know, failing septic systems. So that's a real that's a real concern there. Do you still do you see the same red tides and pink tides and and problems up there? I know certainly the 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 scallop die off was brown tide you know, in the eighties, which started all right. I mean that was the great awakening, I think, for a lot of people. Um, and uh, you know, you mentioned David that um, there were uh, regulations restricting fertilizer use. Has that? Can you talk about that a little bit? Has that been? put into place in East Hampton? Yeah, there there is an ordinance that prohibits the use of fertilizers within, I think it's 150 feet of a wetland or side. I, I don't I should look it up, actually. But yeah, so that's in place. Now, essentially, it's it's almost impossible to enforce. And that would depend on, uh, you know, compliance by landscapers, as well as homeowners being aware of this thing. So of course, it's very difficult when you've got um, a lot of rental properties, you've got a lot of uh, 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 people who who aren't here, who aren't following local code. Uh, but but yeah, fertilizer use close to waterways has been regulated by by town ordinance um whether people are complying i don't know it seems to me that's a a key piece of this i mean you know the cycle that we're in now we have you know everybody dumping fertilizer nitrogen rich fertilizer to have green lawns and then you know pumping the water uh aquifer pumping the aquifer like crazy to water the lawns to keep them green and you know the investment that has to be made to be able to do that um, you know, tens of millions of dollars to just be able to pump the water. And we've got, you know, in places, saltwater intrusion into the aquifer because of over pumping. Um, 
And and, you know, without like addressing that legislatively, I think we're just kind of I don't know. I can't think of the nice expression to use to <laughs> to say what we're doing. But, um, you know, it's really pretty futile, I think, um, that not futile, but futile that that we're, you know, the, the cycle that we're in. It's crazy and expensive and, and it's not we're not going to get anywhere. I mean, I think that the septic, you know, the, the attempts to regulate um, the septic systems and, and reduce nitrogen discharge by treating them in, in these on-site systems is a sound idea. Um, I think, you know, it's really expensive for most people. Um, and I'm not sure what it does to the housing market eventually. But, um, you know, I think that other piece of this, which is a big piece, is the use of fertilizer on lawns and, and the irrigation that goes with it. Um, I think there's an education component to it, too. Yeah. It's something that we talk about as journalists and who go to these kind of meetings. And I don't think my neighbors here who have these amazing green lawns, and I'm, yeah, I, I just don't think they're even aware of what they're doing. And, uh, you know, they just they see the commercials, they go up to the hardware store, or the Home Depot, they get the big bags of fertilizer and they're dumping them and they green their lawns are immaculate. And my lawn looks like awful because I'm uh, I feel guilty anytime I put fertilizer down. It's also kind of amazing how little people know about the way their water and septic system works. Like if you come out here from the city. You're used to just the heat coming up from who knows where. You're used to just flushing the toilet and not worrying about where it goes. And um, you don't even, you know, really, you know, your water comes from somewhere upstate. So, I mean, I think that's always a big wake up call when people buy houses out here and they realize, like, wait a minute, I have to put fuel in the tank. Wait, wait, where does, <laughs> wait, <laughs> why does my backyard smell and it's mushy? You know, it's right. Yeah. And I just wonder if there's some way to get the cost of these alternative ways water treatment systems down for people. Well, there is that is like, program. We I, have, I don't even want to fix my air conditioner. It costs right. nowhere near that much. Right. We, have, we have ours done. We, had, we have a new system in our yard. Um, and I have to say the rebate program pretty much covered everything. Um, the difficult part was jumping through the hoops. I mean, luckily my husband had the time and the energy to deal with it. If you don't, you know, if you don't hire somebody to help you go through all the paperwork and file everything that you need, um, it's quite a chore. I mean, I'm really happy we did it. And we had to do it. That's the other thing. We didn't you know, I, I like helping the environment, but our our septic system was from the late 60s and it was failing. So it had to be done. We were in a good position to do it for that reason. Um, did, you, but did, yeah, you have to, did you have to put money up front and then get it rebated or, or did it work had, out? Yeah, I think maybe like the survey, we had to get everything resurveyed and right. um, we had to do a pretty expensive water test um, on our well um, first. So there were some upfront costs, but it worked. I mean, we got, you know, we, it covered pretty much everything. Um, and even, you know, East Hampton town is the last in line and they end up picking up what's left over. I think they even paid for the grass seed that we threw down that didn't grow, you know, and now, um, was there a reason why you had to do that or it was, you were, you know, being a good citizen? Um, well, like I said, our, our septic system was terribly failing. I mean, it was, oh, okay. yes. it was limping through, we had to get it pumped constantly. And, um, especially, you know, after we had summer visitors and, uh, every mm. year. Um, and that was, that was the, the problem. I mean, of course, the thing that I dislike is the whole idea that, you know, the system is 1099 income that we had to pay taxes on, which is ridiculous. right. Yeah, that was a that bit was of a scandal. Issue. But, yeah. you know, the other the other piece and I, I, I my sister's done it. I, I haven't yet um, is the the ongoing maintenance costs as well as uh, a minor cost for electrical use. Um, right. So, you know, unlike having your uh, septic tank pumped, you know, 
once in a while as needed. There's this ongoing maintenance cost. Um, and I also think that it, that it may be a little prohibitive for people who are looking to do things like build an accessory apartment. Uh, you know, there, I think there is a dovetail back to, uh, you know, the, the town tries to incentivize people to, to create some affordable housing. Uh, East Hampton Town in particular has done this. Um, but that may trigger a, a you know thirteen or twenty thousand dollar septic job to to bring your property into into compliance, um, which if you're not a real estate investor, I, I think could be a disincentive to creating um, more housing under some of these uh, affordable housing incentive programs. So there's this, there's quite a lot of circles, um, and I think one one of my criticisms of this has always been that there was no. Uh, there wasn't any substantial science uh, one way or the other saying these things work and they make a difference. So <clears throat> you have this <clears throat> mandate without anything backing it up, just a hunch that this was going to um, mitigate the amount of uh, nitrogen and other substances flowing into waterways. Um, and yet they're they're imposing it basically everywhere. And, uh, uh, you know, that 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 was troubling, you know, to, to impose essentially this massive tax on people as they're looking to renovate or build uh, without there being a substantial basis, uh, demonstrable basis, quantifiable uh, argument for it uh, was always something puzzling. Uh, that may emerge, and I think that circles back to what Gobler is doing in testing uh, nitrogen and waterways, but um, you know, government often does what looks good, not necessarily what is right for the environment. Right. And, uh, I well, think you know, so it's part of our role as journalists is to kind of ask that question. Well, you know, where is it? Where's you know, where is it that this thing you're proposing uh, a- actually is expected to produce results? And uh, sometimes they yeah, can't do and it. And how is that data ever going to be measured with so many things? It's, it's like, well, in East, <laughs> you know, in the Peconics, there was no baseline data. There was no testing of the before right before these things started to be imposed and so there wasn't really going to be any way to uh, judge the after um other than sort of uh, subjective measures like are do we you know how are the scallops doing or or how much brown tide do we have um so it's very uh ascientific in a way which is fascinating i mean it's I suppose politics is the antithesis of science, but um, <laughs> it, was, it was a puzzling wow. process. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you said um, you don't really see too many uh, town council people with uh, PhDs in the sciences. It was like you, you'd almost have to have in Suffolk County, you'd almost have to have a cop, like a former cop who had a PhD in science to get them elected. You know, <laughs> it's brilliant. I could accept the premise very readily that. Um, it's good to reduce nitrogen loading to the groundwater. I think, you know, that maybe there's no demonstrable evidence of that or, you know, significant. But but what I what I had trouble with with these systems was that they were sort of experimental when they were still right. mandated. You know, like it wasn't clear that they were going to work or that they were going to work long term or that they were going to work in this environment that we live in. You know, so, I mean, even if we say, OK, we it's good to reduce nitrogen loading. Um, are these really going to do it? And we're putting people in a position of uh, having to spend a, a lot of money to uh, install these systems kind of on a, on a hunch. And mm-hmm. that, to me, was a troubling aspect. Of I mean, it. Denise, like if you think about Riverhead Town, the population, I mean, how many people really even want to do this or could afford to do this, you know, yeah. to make it enough of an impact? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
You're listening to Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. Um, I'm Bill Sutton from the Express News Group, joined by my co-host Annette Hinkle from the Express News Group. Panelists are David Rattray, editor of the East Hampton Star, Denise Civiletti, editor and publisher, publisher of Riverhead Local, and Grant Parpin, content director from Times Review Media Group in Riverhead. Um, I, you, 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 you Riverhead folks, you wrote a, a, an interesting story this week. I thought it was fascinating. Jeff Murphy, who's like the head planner in Riverhead, was consulting for uh, the project to um, to to build the new proposed 7-Eleven in Riverside um, and the Flanders, uh, Franca, Flanders, Riverside, Northampton Civic Association filed an ethics complaint complaining that he was doing that. And I, <clears throat> I think this is I certainly know Jeff Murphy from when I was a Southampton town reporter. But this is an issue that, that I've, I've seen um, for, for, for years and years. You've got Riverside, Riverside Hamlet and, and Northampton or uh, Flanders and Northampton, which are, are, are right next to Riverhead Town, but in Southampton Town. And you've got this mixed messaging um, in, in planning and developing, you know, um, areas along the river on, on both towns. And I'm I'm just wondering um, you know, how uh, your, your take on, on that as far as, as this is concerned. And, you know, um, I mean, Jeff, Jeff certainly was was working as a private consultant for the group in, in Riverside. Um, is it unethical, um, you know, for for him to do that, being the planner for 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 Riverhead? Um, or is it just more of a charge of, you know, having having differing uh differing views on how that river riverfront should be developed? Well, um, I think that, well, first of all, um, you know, the thing that shocked the the Flanders, the Franca group was um, that he, he was, not just that he was consulting as a private consultant for a developer of the proposed 7-Eleven on the circle, but that, um, he was um, presenting it to the Southampton Planning Board as if it were in keeping with um, the revitalization plan for the Riverside area that, that they did and adopted, that the town board adopted in Southampton. And, uh, Riverside rediscovered. 2015, yeah. And, and um, you know, he, he, um, he Murphy uh, tried to make the case that it, if not in keeping with that plan, but it was in keeping with the prior plan and it wasn't going to uh, negatively impact the development of Riverside that the plan, the 2015 plan envisioned. And I think um, that is a somewhat, <laughs> for a lot of reasons, untenable position to be taking. Um, and um, Vince Taldone told me that, you know, when he, uh, and, and it was obvious when you watched the, the meeting that he was not aware that um, Mr. Murphy was still working for the town of Riverhead. He thought he'd left Riverhead's employment. And when uh -huh. he found out that, in fact, he was still the main planner, the, you know, the head planner for Riverhead, he was pretty you know, shocked by that. Um, Riverhead does not have any um, prohibition against um, employees, even department heads like that, um, working you know, outside of the town. And as far as I know, they don't even really have any restrictions or required, um, you know, permission or anything like that. So I don't think, I mean, uh, Franca filed an ethics complaint against him with the town, but I don't think that, uh, I don't, I personally don't see that going anywhere really. Um, I, you know, reading the ethics code and, and looking at, you know, 
what he's what he's doing. I, I don't I don't know. Um, uh, there are other professional codes of ethics that planners uh, have to abide by, and um, whether or not his actions um, are in keeping with those standards is uh, I don't know. It remains to be seen. Um, I think we we tend to want our public servants to be completely pure and just you know they serve the town. They, they but there's an, an economic reality to it that they're gonna you know want to make more money in other ways when they can and take that expertise. And I think that's fair. You just I think it's one of those projects where you just kind of wish like hey maybe like not like ten feet away from the town border to exactly, uh, pick right. this project that you work as a consultant on. And I'm, I'm that's not to say that he's nefarious in any way with this, no. but. It's like maybe just take another gig. A, one thing that troubles me, field away. One thing that troubles me, though, with that is even regardless of the proximity or not to the town that's employing him, um, you know, he. I just did a little poking around and uh, very easily located the fact that two of the people on that development team on the Riverside Traffic Circle are working on the HK Ventures. Um, uh, project, which you did some great reporting on the past year, Grant, mm-hmm. about uh, about that. It's a that's that's inside Riverhead Town. It's in it's inside Riverhead. It's in Calverton. It's a four hundred and twenty five thousand almost square foot Ooh. industrial development right. proposed. Right. And, you know, he's in charge of if not reviewing it himself, but the uh, the person who is the, doing the reviewing. And I mean, it's the attorney is the same, the traffic consultant hmm. is the same as the Riverside Project. So that opens up the question, well, who hired Mr. Murphy for the Riverside Project? Yeah, Did that, that would attorney absolutely, hire him? Did, yeah. you know, I mean, there's a lot of complicated, and I sent him um, uh, a, a set of very specific questions by email last weekend um, asking questions ab- about that, and um, he declined to answer those questions. So, yeah, and the whole HK Ventures thing just reeks. You got this guy, yeah. you, the, the silent <laughs> leader of that, who's this like guy with deep Russian mob ties that is well documented. Hmm. You have the broker on the project hosting fundraisers for Lee Zeldin at his house. Uh, you got um, <laughs> the, the attorney bef- appearing before the planning board is now in the state assembly. Uh, or at least he ran for assembly. I believe he was elected, right? Um, it's just, I don't know. Can we? Yeah, and they hire the guy for the project just, you know, across the road. It's just, yeah, that's a straight up conflict of interest. And it's interesting. I mean, some of the towns have a little bit stricter, uh, ordinances about moonlighting. East Hampton Town cops, for example, can't um, moonlight, but in the village of East Hampton, they can. Uh, The mayor of East Hampton uh, is head of security for the village's uh, largest property owner uh, as well, you know, which is, you know, it's absolutely clearly a conflict of interest, but it's not technically prohibited. Um, But I, I do think it is something that that the public, you know, t- town governments are very unlikely to want to regulate this type of thing. I think it's it's one of those things that if if anybody's concerned, it's going to come from the sort of the public advocate side, um, maybe citizens groups saying like, hey, you can't double dip like that. You no. can't play both sides of the, uh, the 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 Riverhead town line, so to speak. Well, to, you know, to take the other side of it, look, if, if I was a, a developer 
that wanted to, you know, develop that project in, in Riverside. And I saw that Mr. Murphy was available, knowing that he was the chief planner in Southampton Town and knew how things worked in Southampton Town and knew how, you know, the planning board worked in, in Southampton Town. I, I think I'd, I'd probably lean toward him. Um, of course you, know, you would. If there's, if there's nothing prohibiting that. Right. Um, I just wonder what effect that project has on on, on River, Riverhead um, downtown and, and the efforts to develop uh, Main Street in that area and the riverfront in, in that and you area. You just had a nice, shiny new 7-Eleven built right there, too, yeah. you know, on, on East Main Street. And yeah, from like, Halloween. How many, who's drinking all these Slurpees? I mean, how many seven? I think there's uh, between seven and 11, 7-Elevens right there. So well, I don't know why we need another be one. one less. The Sag Harbor right in that. I mean, we're about yeah. to see one bulldozed, I believe. Yeah. That's what they're thinking. Right. Yeah. And I just, it's just so funny. So we, we've talked about this before, um, but the whole idea that, you know, whatever, when that 7-Eleven went in at Tech Harbor, everybody screamed bloody murder about having that go in. And now they're screaming bloody murder about it going out. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was going to be the end of civilization as we knew it, that, that right. you know, the, the 7-Eleven would uh, bring in the wrong element. Um, right. so what we're talking about is the Bay Street Theater um, project, which would, um, pretty substantially alter the the, the waterfront um, there. And and there's getting to be a degree of, of pushback. Um, yeah, I don't cover Sag Harbor directly myself, but, uh, you know, certainly it's not a, a, a love fest the same way it was for the Sag Harbor cinema, uh, which redeveloped on site and, and with the same facade as before. Um, the, right. the Bay Street Theater project could could face some higher hurdles, I think. There's also just a lot of suspicion about who's actually financing it all. That's sort of what we saw a lot this week in the letters to the editor. Um, right. Question of um, of who is really behind the money and is the, the Bay Street Theater sort of the altruistic face of whoever of a larger, the, larger plan, the right. pocketed planner or um, developers right. maybe. be. Um, which is interesting. It's also the other thing is about interesting about Bay Street is there's always been, you know, as, as, as such a great anchor that Bay Street Theater is to Sac Harbor, there's always still been a sort of us and them kind of mentality, even though Bay Street's been there 30 years. There's a lot of residents of Sac Harbor who have never stepped foot in the Bay Street mm. Theater, just like there's a lot of residents of Sac Harbor who never stepped foot into the movie theater. Um, so there's I feel like this is sort of that last last cast of, of old Sag Harbor versus quote unquote new Sag Harbor. Um, and, you know, you see this too, I'm sure David in, in East Hampton, but just, you know, the, 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 the old long timers sort of coming up against the less long timers, yeah. but long timers, nonetheless, now that 30 years has gone by with Bay Street. So the, the fight over here, which is fascinating is uh, really, it's something Sag Harbor's also dealt with, which is the commercial versus residents uh, here. The battleground is going to be the, the inns and hotels, Hotels that want to expand um, the the hunting inn, which is on Main Street in East Hampton, wants to add uh, a pool with cabanas and the works. Um, you know, will you know live DJs and you know that sort of thing happen? Um, weddings in residential districts and some of these uh, antique uh, inns. Um, that conflict, uh, I think, is fascinating. You know, and I think I think village boards in particular. Um, Town boards, too, have to grapple with whether they, uh, you know, to which what extent they are representing the, the interests of people who actually live there versus people who are coming in from outside to make money. And I, I think that that's a that's a, a tough thing. And I think that underpins a lot of the pol political posturing that you see 
really across the East End is, is that conflict that you describe in that, you know. There's also that danger of the people coming in have such deep pockets that they could basically sue the village and town boards out of existence, you yeah. know. Like, I feel that that was something that, you know, they saw, we saw a long time ago in Southampton when when that Sagaponic area started getting developed and, you know, the Ira Rennet property seemed to be. Hmm. Uh, there, there's just, I think there's a lot of intimidation factor. You know, you bring in these heavy hitting lawyers to go up against these town and village boards where they, you know, maybe they make $5,000 a year <laughs> in that role. Um, yeah, that's the thing that I'm curious about is how, you know, the, the boards are, must be a little bit nervous about potential lawsuits and all sorts of zoning and planning matters, I'm thinking. You also, from a journalism perspective, it's like access to these people. We're seeing it more in South Hold now where and, and you've probably seen it a little more in the Hamptons where, you know, it, it was very easy for us to kind of call a business owner and get them on the phone and, mm. and do a story. And now it's like you got one another that told me yesterday they called the PR person who said, mm. my PR person will get right back to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to find a number for LLC, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> We are um, quickly running out of time. We've got about a minute and a half left. If you want to take 30 seconds each and talk about a story that you're working on in the upcoming days or or week. David, you want to jump in? Well, I, I you know, what I'm watching uh, is there's the Ladies Village Improvement Society in East Hampton, which hired uh-huh. a man uh, to be its first executive director and a number of members um you know, complained on uh, in in, our, in stories in the paper and on Facebook, and two people have been have been booted from the membership of the Ladies Village Improvement Society of East Hampton so far, and that'll be interesting to see what what shakes out there. There's some talk about a dissident uh, 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 Village Improvement Society forming. Um, let's see, Denise. <laughs> I'm still, I can't get over this. A ladies' village improvement. All right. Yeah. Um, so I guess <laughs> we're going to have a new school superintendent in Riverhead. Uh-huh. And it may, that may be announced next week. And um, they, uh, the district announced that they're negotiating a contract with the successful candidate that they uh, targeted during a search. Uh, and uh, it's not the interim su- superintendent who, um, you know, has been doing the job since uh, the last superintendent abruptly resigned in, at the end of June. This has been Behind the Headlines on WLIW-FM. Great panel, great discussion, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.